I, you'll see in a minute, but I'm not tiny. I'm not going to beat myself up tomorrow morning saying, wow, you just, you just preached on and on and on and on because there's a lot to say about a donkey. I got held up this week as I take a break from our series in Colossians to preach a, a, a sermon based on the theme of this Palm Sunday and then next week I'll preach a sermon on because we get visitors usually for Easter and Christmas, normally then I keep the sermon short. It becomes a homily rather than a sermon. So you're going to get what I want to give you next week Because there is more to see and learn about a little donkey that Jesus rode than I ever thought possible. Listen to God's Word first, and if you have your Bibles with you, you'll want to turn with me to Mark chapter 11, where I begin with verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they Kingdom of our Father David. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's word. That you would bless your As for some. Your word, the Bible, so clearly. So I pray, Father, without confusion, him in that mysterious union of Jesus and his people, his children and that we would leave this place, Father, glad in the house of the Lord. And we ask this by the power of your Spirit, and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, also, are going to find this morning, if you're a guest with us, welcome. We are so glad to have you. Let me tell you a little bit about myself in the sense of my procedure. I typically come in, and I have lots of notes. And if you're really sharp, you can tell the length of the sermon.
by how many tabs I've got in my Bible, the, the references that I want to turn. So some people are already nervous. But let me give you some comfort to say, I'm going to spend more time on the first point than I do the latter points. The latter points, I'm going to look more in, a, in the aspect of application rather than exegesis. That means finding, supporting text to really show you uh, what the scripture is about. I'm also someone that not only brings a bunch of notes to the uh, pulpit, uh, this is a pulpit, the music stand, but I'm also a walker, and so I will usually walk around and uh, I'm a little animated, but not so this morning. This morning, in order to really have a precision and focus, because there is so much ground to cover, I'm going to be a little more bound to this pulpit and to my notes. So a little less eye contact, a little less wandering. And thirdly, I'm not trying to leave anybody out, but we do like to encourage you to bring Bibles because, because we're not naive. We don't just believe, as it were, everything that the preacher says without the foundation. So we like to see it for ourselves. And so we encourage you to bring your own Bible that you might be able to reference these things. We're not trying to leave you out, but we only print in the bulletin the principal passage that we're looking at. And the reason that we go to a trouble for an outline is so, again, that you can take a few notes, but on your own, you can read more thoroughly supporting text. Or in private, or in the community groups, which look at the outline and the text and discuss it for application, you can have something that you might want to talk about further and bring it up in the community group. Okay, that's me. Now, what about the text? This week, I looked at all four Gospels, and all four Gospels declare this event, which is rather unusual, rather unusual, because particularly in the first, in the introduction of the Gospel, if you go to Matthew, you find the genealogy of Christ. If you go to John, you don't find the genealogy listed by mother of, son of, as much as it's a more cosmic genealogy saying before the world was, he was. Very different. Matthew doesn't include that, but John does. And then you see the miracles. Some of the miracles are included and some are not. But every one of the Gospels, beginning today as we celebrate Palm Sunday, entry, it's called the triumphal entry of Christ, and they cover in great detail what we would call Holy Week or Passion Week. To, the, to really make my point, the Gospel of John, half of it, the latter half of the Gospel of John is about Jesus and Holy Week. One third of Luke is about the last week of Christ. One Matthew and Mark, one-fourth of the book is about one week in the life of Christ. So all four of them talk about Palm Sunday. But they're interesting in that we need all four Gospels, not because of redundancy, but because of their contribution to see the whole scene. If you've got your Bible, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. It's Matthew chapter 21, verse 7. In Matthew 21, we have Matthew's recording of the triumphal entry. 
says that, let me go back one. Uh, well, verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Okay. The other three Gospels don't record it that way. The other three Gospels say that he instructed them to go and find a colt that had never been set upon and bring that to him. What is Matthew doing in verse 7 when he says he instructed them to go find a donkey and its colt, bring them both to him, and then they put their cloak in place of a saddle upon them, in verse 7 it says them, and then what did Jesus do? Jesus sat on them. Now, unless Jesus is suddenly a circus performer, where he puts one foot on each and he rides them in, that is physiologically impossible. So, the Bible critic, the person that, that looks at the Bible with a critical eye and says, how do you believe that? It's full of contradictions. Eats this up. This is red meat to them. They say, see there? Right there. That's what the Bible does all the time. That's why I don't believe that the Bible is completely true. Look, in Mark it says, set on it. In Matthew, he said on them. There, was a, there were two in Matthew. There's only one in the other three Gospels. Explain that, preacher. If you're going down I-26, you're going west, westward on I-26, and you've got a good buddy, and you've been talking on the cell phone with them, they're going east. They're coming to Charleston on 26. And you come almost simultaneously upon an accident in the median. And you call your good buddy, and you say, oh, man, did you see that accident? It was horrible. Oh, yeah, I, I'm fearful that people really badly hurt in that one. Yeah, did you see that guy? It looked like he had a big, huge cut on his forehead. Thank goodness there's only one guy in it. Another guy says, one guy? I saw two. Two? No, 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 there was just one. No, I saw two. From my vantage point, I saw two. Now, which one was right? Both were right. But the one who saw two makes his contribution from his vantage point. And Matthew, his principal audience in writing the Gospels, were the Jews, who are very critical in the Scriptures that they possess. The Pharisees read the Scriptures, Holy Torah, the scrolls. They read them literally. So in Zechariah 9.9, if you read that again, and it's printed, therefore, that's why, Matthew is one of the ones that will cite this ancient prophecy that was read earlier. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt. Many, many, many of the sources the literalists would read Zechariah 9.9 there were two animals, not one. But Mark, Luke, and John say that it was only one from their perspective. In other words, it could have been this, that they were instructed to go and get the colt of a donkey that had never been set upon. When they went to untie it, that it had never been separated from its mother. They said, bring her to because remember, if it's never been set upon, it's not exactly a tame beast of burden. So I know that we would do this very often. If you take the if you take mama cow and lead her, baby calf will follow.
so in all likelihood, that was what was happening. And Matthew wanted to go out and explain to the audience that, okay, they were two, but only one was set upon. Jesus didn't set upon them. He set upon the fold. And the others, they were not, they knew, they just took it for granted, but the emphasis was not on two to literally fill Zechariah. The emphasis was on the one that was that he um, was fighting. Now, there's another, there's another point to make, and that is this that the crowds that assembled, you noticed in the book of Mark, it says they got leafy branches. Some of the other Gospels focus more on branch and some focus on the cloak. Some of the other Gospels just mention cloak and some of the other Gospels just mention uh, leafy branches. John Calvin, in his commentary, says it is highly... Highly dubious that they actually went and you know in previous ministries where we had kind of the children to prepare we have them with you know maybe somebody'd walk through them and they'd wave the palms that's what we think about in our mind of Palm Sunday but these people Calvin says it's highly dubious that they climbed trees cut down the palms brought them like an arch and he rode through. These people were so despicably, that means that he doesn't view them, I mean, he, he's not saying that he despised them, but others despised them. They were so despicably that they simply rendered that that they had at hand. That's why Mark writes leafy branches from the fields instead of from the trees. Again, it's his vantage point, it's what he sees. So the Bible, indeed, has integrity. But there's one thing, one thing that all four Gospels agree on. All four Gospels agree that when Jesus got upon the donkey and he rode into Jerusalem, he had walked on foot so far. Not weary. It wasn't as man. I am. I'm walking. This has been a long haul to get to Jerusalem. If you look at what he did before he entered Jerusalem, long. I mean, sixteen-hour days. I mean, he raised Lazarus. He he did miracles. I mean, he he did a lot of stuff before this last trudge into Jerusalem. But it wasn't because he said, you know what? I've got less than a mile to go. I just don't think I can get. Just go get me a donkey. Go go in this time to find me a donkey. No. It was a it was a very decisive choice. And all four gospels go out of their way to include that he came as a coming and reigning king. All four gospels agree that when people looked at him in association with that donkey, that it meant to him that the king was riding in. The king riding in. I asked Wendy yesterday because I have, and somebody's going to correct me at the door, and then next week I'll apologize. But Wendy is my Bible verse scholar. She is my walking concordance. That means that if I'm like, is there any way the Bible does that? You can answer it. So I asked her this question. So it's kind of your challenge to beat Wendy down, okay? 
where Jesus said, I have come to be your king. Is there anywhere in the Bible where he says, and the ancient scriptures testify that indeed I will be the king? No. She said no. That's gospel to me. So nowhere in the Bible does Jesus say that I'm the coming king. Verbally. If you go to the mission field of Nicaragua, Very, it's very distracting. It's, it's, it's kind of cute. You go into the barrios, and you're barely able to walk some of the streets, but they, they still have cars with loudspeakers upon them. And, and plasters all on the car are political posters. I believe that they just have election after election after election there. But because the poor in these barrios, they have no radio, no electricity, therefore no means of communication except for flyers in this car with a loudspeaker. All you hear as you're working in the barrios is, Hola, amigo! And it goes away and finally, whew. And then a little bit later you hear back through the barrio, Hola, amigo! And in English what it means is, Hey, everybody! Vote for this guy. He's going to give you all prosperity. He's going to bring electricity to the, the Vote on September 11th for this candidate. And he goes on. Jesus didn't do that. But what he did in sitting upon the donkey communicated loud and clear to the multitude that was there on the outskirts, the poor, the, the people that were despised, the outsiders. Of in Jerusalem. These little villages and hamlets, Bethphage, you can't find Bethphage in Jericho. Bethany, small town, probably not more than 20 families. That was a large village if it had 20 families. Right? We don't have a synagogue in Bethany, so that means they didn't have 10 Jewish males. So when we say multitude, don't think about hundreds of thousands or even tens of thousands, perhaps not even a thousand. And when they saw him do that, they said, he's the coming king. So much so that when Pilate has Christ to stand before him, he says, so you're the king of the Jews. And he said, you said that. Meaning, do you say that? Because I didn't say that. He said, well, you know, it said it. Well, you say true. In other words, I'm still not going to verbally say it. I do accept it, and I have come as a king. And what, what did Pilate do when he put him before the crowd so that they could get a choice of who they were going to punish? Jesus, king of the Jews, or Barabbas? And it says that the crowds, under the prompting of the Pharisees, chose to free Barabbas. And what did Pilate do when he sentenced him? He said, he sentenced and crucified this who is king of the Jews, and I declare that above his head will be a placard that says, King of the Jews. But it was a non-verbal sign that he sat upon the donkey and he rode in. They associated that as the coming Messiah, their king, and they already began to practice their freedom because the king had come. Now, back to the donkey. I probably should have changed the outline. I think I had enough time to change it. I was still, 
I was still trying to undo the riddle, at least in my own small mind. I should have changed the outline. Instead of saying the borrowed cult, I should have said the unridden cult. But that's what all of the Gospels are for. Everything that they say is from their vantage point, so if they all four agree, it means that it was a point that was not missed by any of these Gospel witnesses. And the point that loomed large to me in this past week was that it was an unwritten cult he knew about in that village. Now, let me ask you, how do you, how do you think that he knew to tell the two disciples who many people believe were Peter and John that he looked to his intimate circle and he said, you know what, we're getting close. We're getting close. And I want you two boys to go into this village over here. And when you go into the village, eyes very sharp, because you're going to find a cult that has never been ridden, and I want you to bring it to me. And just so I know what you're thinking, I know what you're thinking. Thinking that you're going to get a cult. But don't worry untie it, and then if someone or someones, the Gospels disagree at that point, or really it's from their vantage point. Some say people saw, and some say the owner saw, but certainly the owner and other people saw in the small town, two strangers taking a donkey. A very special donkey. It had never been ridden upon. It was a foal. It was still a young colt, as it were. And again, don't think burro. I had to keep forcing my mind not to think little donkey. You know, like I see those priests, like, uh, you know, I, you know, I, th- I think about some of those old spaghetti westerns where they have like these little donkeys and they're rocking, they're just bouncing up and down. Think more of my age. Think John Boyd Lawson riding a mule. You know, think thing that something is almost as big, almost as hands high as a horse. How did Jesus know? He told him. He said, "Look, what I also know is this: say the Lord needs it, and that'll that'll show." right there. Bring it to me. How did Jesus know that it was there? How did he know that anybody would even try to stop him? Now, some of you are thinking it's because he was God. He was fully man and fully God. On this we're all agreed. And so he's omniscient, which means that he knew everything that's happening in the universe at one time. It's a trait that we don't have. He was omniscient. And he was he was saying, I am mind's eye. I'm hearing the entire world now. See everything going on in the world. I, I'm trying to hear God right now. Go do it. I mean, he had done that before. He had done that in John, first chapter, uh, verse 48, where Nathaniel came to him and he said to Nathaniel, who was checking him out, he said, I saw. So we know that he possesses that ability. Maybe, maybe he did it not from his God side, not to be schizophrenic, but not from his God side, but from his human side. Maybe Jesus had set it up. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we read, we read that he had many disciples. He didn't just have the twelve. There were lots of people that had seen his miracles. They had heard him preach. They they had been at the Sermon of Beatitude or the splitting of the bread to feed the 5,000. 
Many people believed in him. They just had to go back home. They couldn't, they couldn't go with a wandering rabbi all over the place and camp out like the 12 disciples did. But they went back to their duties, but they knew Jesus. So maybe Jesus told this guy, you know, one day, one day I'm going to send some men, because you live so close to Jerusalem, I'm going to send some guys to get that foal that you have that was just born. It ought to be right about that time, that age. And I'm not going to tell you what, when, because I'm not going to be that specific, but one day some guys are going to come, and they're going to... Okay? All right? Could have happened. He could have made prior arrangements. Here's what I I believe that Jesus was was a perfect man. He is our exemplar. He is what we as sons and daughters now born again through Jesus Christ are being made and molded and transformed into. He is our Lord, but he's also our elder brother. And as family members, we're growing more and more to be like Christ. And he demonstrates right here all the properties of a man who is filled with God's Spirit and full of faith. And here's what I mean by that. I believe that as he walked closer to Jerusalem, closer to Jerusalem, he was not wringing his hands, fretting. He wasn't saying, you know, there's Zechariah 9.9, and I don't see any donkeys following me yet. I don't see any donkeys in the way. It says i got to ride in with a donkey. Where's the donkey, God? Uh-uh. I believe that apart from his ability to be omniscient, he could have, not ruling that out, apart from his arrangement prior to that, he could have, not ruling that out, but here's what I believe. I believe that he was so full of faith in Zechariah 9.9. He that he had a spirit that was bent to, to follow God's word. He had God's word on it, and he put all faith in it. He basically said this, you know what, I'm getting pretty close, and I am not destined, predestined to walk in. No king walks in. Poor people walk because they can't afford a car, or they can't afford to repair it. I'm not, I'm no longer going to be seen as a poor traveling rabbi. I am going to enter Jerusalem game on with the, you know, as the attitude of a Zechariah 9.9 must be fulfilled. There's only two villages left. I want you to go to Bethphage or Bethany and you find what my father has said will be there. And let's not think too little of the disciples that they did it. They demonstrated, like Christ, faith in God's word. They'd just seen Jesus Christ raise Lazarus from the dead. So if he said, know that God's word is going to be fulfilled. In other words, beloved, he trusts in God's word. He doesn't just trust, well, it's going to come to me by God's spirit. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the words of God. Do you believe that? Do you have that kind of, of faith? That kind of faith that says, I know from reading God's word, I have a sense of where 
He wants me to go, but I don't know what the consequences will be. I don't know what the cost will be. I don't know what's on the other side of that. Do you have such faith that you would follow His Word? Do you put yourself in His Word, or do you just say, it'll just come to me by osmosis? He can't direct you except by His Word, but then as you have an intake of that. In other words, Jesus Christ was led by Zechariah 9.9 and put his faith in his Father. But if he didn't possess Zechariah 9.9, he wouldn't have even been looking for what his Father had for him. Okay, now i got to leave the donkey. I did something this week that answered one of my dilemmas. I couldn't get away from the fact that this donkey was, was sat upon. Now, don't think like little baby donkey submissive. Think about a donkey that is now of age, almost as large as a horse that had never been ridden. So I call my buddy John Marcus. John Marcus out in Utah is a mule skinner or a mule handler. He knows everything there is about riding mules. He knows everything there is about organizing whole mule trips or mule trains. He knows everything there is to know about jackasses, mules, and donkeys. So I call him. I say, hey, John. He says, not much. Just got back from Cecil's. Cecil's called a mule uh, driver or rider. He said, um, I got a question for you. If Jesus, I mean, he says, I said, first of all, what is, how do you get a donkey that it's rideable? And he says, well, the horse blanket on it, just so it begins to get used to that feel. Do that for about a week. Then the next thing that you do is you go out a week later, you put the saddle on it. So, or well, he says, you can either put a saddle on it or you can put sandbags on it. But then you put a saddle on it, and then you put the sandbags on it so that it's used to that weight on its back. And after you've done that for a couple of weeks, in a corral, not out in the open, especially if it's the smell of the person that's going to be on the back, giving it a few sugar cubes with this burden on its back. Then, finally, you open the gate and you get on the back of that thing and you hope that you can stay on it as it gets through its preliminary bucking. So I said, John, to answer my problem, how did Jesus do it? Jesus sat on the back of an unridden animal. Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is a prophecy also. It's a promise that is given to us. Psalm 8 would have been used like a, a prayer in their synagogue for the coming Messiah. Yet you have made him honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. What is happening here is that, that, that Jesus only 
the mule whisperer as it was, with no saddle, with a cloak, sits upon an animal, and because he is the creator, king, only the king over that creature can get such a tamed response. Jesus sits upon an animal that's never been visited, that's never been sat upon, it's never been ridden. There's no bucking. There's no going wild in a, in a, in a direction. It comes under him. Now, I'm going to have to a few minutes, but I had a similar experience yesterday when I went out told me, he said, have you checked on your boat lately? And I said, no, I was thinking I was going to go down and look at it, but uh, Dave's just kind of gotten away from me. I have a little 22-foot project sailboat, and it's tied up to a floating dock. So that dock, when I went down to it, I've got three lines or ropes that tie it to the floating dock. Yesterday, the wind was so great, so great, canceled the, the last day of sailing competition in the Charleston Harbor. Too much wind. Generally, uh, you can't sail because there's not enough wind. 30 knots of wind. That's, that's almost 30 plus miles an hour of wind. And I go down to look, and my little boat is going up, the dock goes down, and then the dock comes up, and my boat goes down, and they crash in the middle. I'm looking for the whole boat to come up out of the water. To get on my boat, to get additional lines to tie it on to all the cleats on the, on the deck, I get on the boat and I have to pause every once in a while because my boat is going up and down. I can't walk, I can't stand up. I'm kind of crawling over things and just waiting for the lines to snap. And I just go careening into somebody's dock. I could see this. I'm just so full of fear. So I get the lines on it and I just I don't want to leave. I didn't know what to do. I, I just felt, felt if I just stared at it, then it would stay put. But if I turn my back, it's going to snap and go away. The only thing that got me to leave was, Lord, you once called the waters, calmed the waters. You spoke to them. You said, peace, be You rode an unwritten donkey. And on that unwritten donkey, it doesn't record what you said, but perhaps you to that book and say, you bear a king. And wild thing, untamed thing, be calm. For your king is upon your back. So Lord, I know I'm not asking for a miracle, but I am asking that you calm the waves down enough as it's hitting my little boat so that it doesn't go off and get destroyed in the marsh. Run aground and I can't get it out. Lord, would you take care of my little boat? It can't face these big trees. So but I was full of faith because then I could do nothing more, but it was like, this is okay. And in about an hour, and I don't, you don't have to thank me, but in about an hour, high tide, the winds began to curl little bit and things settled down and lo and behold when I went back this morning boat perfectly this morning was perfect conditions just like glass out there and there was my happy little boat still afloat now 
out of all that, can I ask you, is there an area in your life that could be put in the category of wild and untamed? And you have tried to tame it time after time after time again. What you need to do is to invite Christ who can speak to untamed things. Invite Him to come and visit that untamed Whatever it is, open yourself up to Him. Invite Him to that area with all faith. And He'll come. And He'll begin to calm the waters, as it were, in that area. But we've got to quit trying to do it, even on our own. Now, there's, just like I said, I've got to go, but would you look and see that when it says that He came in and they sang Hosanna to Him in verse 9, in the name of the Lord, they're doing this, they're singing this psalm to him that they know, Hosanna to the Lord. And it's a psalm that one author wrote this Hosanna to the Lord because it spoke of their restoration and their success and prosperity. Jesus accepted that. And one thing that I asked about this donkey association with the king. I mean, how did poor people look to him and say, because he's riding a donkey, he's a king? Immediately that they gave to him, they put in his hands their poor robes to him. Donkey ridden by a king in triumph. A war horse was ridden by a king in battle. The king is yet determined. Now again, I can't expand upon this point except to say when Jesus came riding in to Jerusalem, he didn't come and say, okay, now I've got to, I've got to earn my spurs here. Okay, I've got to take my hits and I've got, to, I've got to kind of seize everything and earn it as a king. No. When he came in, he had already made. He was making a conscious step of a determination. In essence, what he was saying is game on and I've already won the game. 33 years and it's come to this. I know the end. There is no turning back and the game is mine. Leon Morris makes this comment. He said, the situation that the ancient world saw was they needed a, a redemption from a Messiah. They were well aware that they could not break free of sin and I might say the untamed areas of their life. We who belong to God often have gotten into the power of a strong enemy from which we cannot break free. And if I can say it reverently, God, if he wants us back, must pay the price. Jesus, riding into Jerusalem, was saying, I am a king, I'm aware of the price, consider it paid. It sounds to me, I always thought it was like, you know, the beginning was the cross and the resurrection. The beginning is him riding in. And riding in as a king who has already conquered. He faces every issue in the trial. He, he faces being beaten on the back. He faces having a crown of thorns crushed down on his head. He faces nails being put in his hands. I've already won. I've won. I've won. You can't stop me. 
Palm Sunday is not just palm fronds and we're going to think about Easter coming. It's game on. And I win. And then you look at the crowds that are throwing their cloaks there. They're all poor people. They're poor people that frankly many of us might sneer at. Now, I know that sounds strong. But they're people that don't live where I live. They're people that, that don't live like I live. Today, it might be people who struggle with perversions. It might be people that, who are so in poverty that they, they, they cut corners. Or they live foolish lives. And we kind of turn up our nose at them. And then in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that God, when He came riding in He made choices for His children who they would be. And He chose those that were unwise, they were foolish, and He chose the weak. The very crowd that Christ was riding through as their king, they began to give him accolades to the king who had already ascended. He is our king. But it was people who were poor. People who were, who were not full of themselves. People who were not so self-absorbed that they might look at Jesus and say, well, that was an impressive miracle. But they would look at him and they would say with hungry eyes, he is my king. In Matthew 5, 2, Jesus Christ addresses it on the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is theirs. This morning, there's only one qualification, one qualification for Christians who would come to this table. For you see, every time we come to this table, Christ comes as the great donkey tamer, the great creation tamer that He is. He comes into our life riding again as our King. And we take of this bread and we take of this cup and we invite Him once again to rule and to reign over everything in our life. But we come hungry. We don't come full of ourselves. We come broken. We come in need of Him and in want of Him. And He satisfies us with Him. Is for the Christian who, baptized in the faith, recognizes in the bread cup Christ. Because you see, on the night that He was betrayed, He took bread and when He broke it, He said, This is my body broken for you same manner after supper he took the cup and he said this cup is the new covenant of my blood which is shed for you drink this in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and you take this cup you celebrate my death on your behalf until I come again and we look forward to a risen Lord to his return. Even as an ancient people look to his arrival, look to his return. It's already, it's a feat accomplished. We know not the time, but we know and have every assurance that it's going 
behind you. In fact, Christ said, every time you eat this table, I want you to see me here serving you, feeding you, strengthening you as my sons and daughters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would set these things before you and ask that you take this humble bread and this humble cup of wine and you would so transform it that it would feed us, it would feed us your grace. That this is one of the means that you would use to strengthen us as your people. That we'll focus and we'll see that you didn't die with reluctance. Bring yourself forward as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.